John chapter 7. We are coming close to the end. Uh, sometimes you've got to slow down and smell the roses. And this is one of those uh, important passages, I think, uh, for our understanding of the gospel and what it is that Christ is doing. So, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Father, as we listen to the word read and preached this morning, work in us by that Spirit so that we might see the greatness of Jesus as well as our great need of Him. We ask that you would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, that Christ would indeed be exalted among us this morning. In our confession of faith this morning, (coughs) we went through the five solas, and uh, we could have spent a whole lot more time, a whole lot more words kind of unpacking what each of those five slogans or sayings of the Reformation really mean. But they really get to the heart of our understanding of the gospel. And they're set in contradistinction to what Roman Catholicism held at that particular point in time and still holds by and large. Okay? It's important for us to understand that though tradition is a good thing, that we can make use of the writings of people like Augustine and uh, Chrysostom and others who have gone before us in the faith. They're not determinative of what we are to believe the Scriptures are. They're helpful in helping us understand the Scriptures, but the Scriptures are the ultimate authority. And so just because John Calvin said it doesn't mean you have to believe it. But you should have a pretty good reason if you're going to disagree with him. Okay? Not only sola scriptura, but the idea of sola gratia, that all of our salvation is rooted in the grace of God. It is not the grace of God and the effort of man. It is not faith in Christ Christ and our good works, but it is all of grace received by faith. And even that, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, is the gift of God. But I think we might need one more. I'm not sure. I go back and forth on this. I don't want to be dogmatic about it. But I think there's one more sola that should happen. Solus spiritus. That we might recognize it is the work of the Spirit that gives us everything we receive in Christ. So we're going to work on that this morning. Our big idea is that Christ satisfies spiritual thirst through the Spirit. And first we have to face the reality that without Christ, people thirst for real life. This, of course, is set during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, on the last day, the great day. We're not sure which day that was. Okay, Some believe it was the seventh day of the festival, and some believe it was the eighth day of the festival, the day when everyone tore everything down and got ready to go home and all that fun kind of stuff. Remember, for a week they've been living in these little shelters they've built out of branches, 
And there's been a liturgy that has taken place throughout the week of of it of uh, tabernacles, and it happens every day. And what happens is sort of this. They have a golden flask, actually a flagon probably, but it looks like a flask, okay? And they fill this with water from the pool of Siloam. Now, we've seen that before. Remember, the paralytic was hanging out there when Jesus found him and healed him. So they take a a flask full of this water from this particular pool, and they carry it in a procession that is led by the high priest. As they begin to approach the water gate on the south side, uh, there are three blasts from the shofar. And if you don't know what the shofar is, it's the, the ram's horn horn. You know, they, they just blow through that, and I, I wish I had had a shofar, but it would be kind of noisy in here. So, you know, you kind of have this, all these people, they're following the high priest who's, who's got the water, and they've got to blow in the horn, announcing the entrance back into the temple area <coughs> proper. And no longer, no, it's not only Thai season right now, but it's also Steve allergy season, so forgive me. <coughs> After the shofar is blasted, the priests begin to process around the altar. Okay, they make a few circles around the altar. And while they're doing this, the people, <clears throat> well, the choir around them, is, is singing the halal, which for those who aren't familiar, it's Psalms 113 through 118. So they sing these six psalms while they kind of go around the altar and with the water, and they're remembering in part the wilderness journeys, because sometimes it seemed like they were going in circles. Okay, they, were, they didn't go the straight line from Egypt up to Canaan. They meandered their way according to God's plan and purpose. So there they are, they're marching around. The choir is singing, and when they get to Psalm 118, the men have branches in one hand, and they have citrus fruit in the other, branches symbolizing what they made their booths out of. And so they're shaking these things as they cry out, Give thanks to the Lord three times. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, remembering that God sustained them in the midst of their wilderness journeys, well, sustained their forefathers in those journeys. And it's then at this high peak of, this, of praise that the priest takes the water offers it to God, and pours it out. That is an incredibly important thing to keep in mind as we think of what Jesus says, which we're going to get to momentarily. This liturgy of the first seven days reflects God's provision in the wilderness, but it also reflected their hope for the future because they recognized that the water represented something. It represented the Spirit, and they're longing for the Here's a big word, sorry. Eschatological or last day time when the Messiah would pour the Spirit out upon his people. So they had some sense of this from the prophecies of people like Ezekiel. Okay? They longed for this day when it would happen. And so Jesus, on this great last day, stands in the temple area and he cries out volume. He's loud. He wants people to hear him because they, they need to hear what he has to say. And he starts off with the phrase, if anyone thirsts, okay? See the connection with the water ceremony. If anyone thirsts, the thirst in the wilderness pointed people or was meant to point people to a far greater thirst that existed within them, a spiritual thirst. Both kill. 
if they're never satisfied. Physical thirst and spiritual thirst can kill you. And so Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, why is it that we would understand that people thirst? Why would, would Jesus expect people to respond this, to this message? It's important to remember that all people outside of Christ thirst. Why? We were made in the image of God. And part of what that means is that we were created to worship Him. We were created to find out who we are in relationship to Him. When you look at the, uh, the creation mandates, be fruitful and multiply. We had a little bit of that today, the multiplying part, you know. Another, another person in the body of Christ, okay? We only make sense of that when we understand that we are made in the image of God. And that we're meant to fill the earth and take dominion over the earth as his representatives, if we take out this idea of man made in the image of God, which is what secularists do, they, they rip that out, and now life doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. You have to sort of create meaning to life as opposed to having meaning given to you. Okay? So, <clears throat> we were made in the image of God. We were made to worship Him. We were made to find our significance to Him, uh, in Him. Okay? But since Adam and Eve sinned, and were banished from the garden. People are cut off from God. Okay? They no longer worship Him, apart from the grace of God. They no longer find their significance in Him. They seek to find it in something else. Okay, so they thirst. They have sought real life in any number of things and they don't find real life in those things, they continue to thirst. Even amongst the people of Israel, Jeremiah 2, one of my favorite passages, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so all along, God is offering to his people himself the fountain of living waters. He offers himself to his people. But they were content to, to, not to come to the fountains, but to dig these holes in the ground that they hope will hold water, but ultimately do not hold water, but leak. So they're never able to satisfy <clears throat> the longings of their heart that God has placed there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Similar to what Augustine said, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And so that restlessness is another way of thinking about the thirst that people experience apart from this living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. What do people do? I'm a preacher. I have to alliterate. I think it's somewhere in my job description, right? <clears throat> I say that in jest. But I, I think if there's three things that people do, generally speaking. Some people live in denial. <clears throat> they don't want to face the fact that they have this thirst, that there's something not right in their own world. They don't want to say that they're thirsty. They just suppress this knowledge, as Paul would say, an unrighteousness. Okay? 
And so people go to some extremes, things like atheism, nihilism. We think of those things in, in a negative sense. But some people go to what we might think of as more positive things. Uh, they, they find their need to worship satisfied, and I use that loosely, in things like sports. And they make idols of sports figures or sports teams, whatever, whatever uh, it might be. And so there are people who live sort of in this denial of being made in God's image and, and needing to worship someone greater than themselves. One of the interesting things about the movie Fury that a couple of us went to the other night is that here you have these, this tank crew. These, was it five guys? One, two. Yeah, five guys in the tank. <clears throat> One of them's a Christian. And the subject of God keeps coming up. And it's in the, it's in the context of war, and they're, <clears throat> and they're struggling to figure out why are we alive and why are our, the other guys in the other tanks dead. And they're trying to put these things together, and instead of listening, so to speak, to the Scriptures, they live in denial of the Scriptures. And they, they just try to squash down the fact that, that they need to worship Him with drugs, not drugs, but alcohol and women. Which leads us sort of to our second one. Some people dull the thirst. You see, they seek to dull the pain of the thirst. <clears throat> and it, as we talk about the next one, it, it, here's how it, it differs. In this case, they feel a sense of shame based in the fact that they feel the thirst. They think there's something broken in them, and in fact there is something broken. But they think that only they are broken. That not, not the fact that everyone else in the world is also broken. And so not wanting to feel the pain of this anymore, they, they dive down into addiction of various kinds. And those addictions usually add to the shame. Okay? They increase their sense of loneliness and isolation their sense of worthlessness, because you feel it, oh, I did that again. And it's, sometimes it's not all the, you know, drug addiction or sexual addiction. It can be things that people don't even notice, like shopping addiction, food. And these things, what sets this apart is, is, is that whole shame aspect, not only in what drives it, but also how it's experienced, because it's usually experienced in private, in an isolation from everyone else. The woman who binges and purges, no one sees. But that's part of her way of dealing with the fact of trying to dull the pain of the thirst for something she can't seem to find. The third group that I thought of anyway was those who are driven, driven to seek to satisfy the thirst. Now, Okay, they're not doing this in private. They're not doing this with a sense of shame. They are bold-faced about it. That's what sets it apart, okay? They're pursuing with everything they've got. They're pursuing to try and fill this hole within themselves with sex, with power, with money, lots of vacations, whatever it is. But there's a, they're driven to find some way to fill the hole. But unless you fill it with the right thing, it's just like a sinkhole. Everything that you toss in there will disappear. That's what people do. 
And so when Jesus talks about people thirsting, he's speaking to that reality of, of how people run from the truth, even though they feel this great need and longing in themselves. That everyone is looking for life, not just some people. Everyone is looking for hope, unless they've given up. But even then, they keep living, right? Significance, something to worship. The question is, where do they look to find these things? They're not wrong or bad for wanting those things. It's where do they look to get them? People don't naturally seek the biblical God, though they may look for, for cheap imitations of him. Like I mentioned earlier, that therapeutic moralistic deism. A God that will make them feel better. A God whom they can satisfy if they keep certain rules or commands. A God who really isn't there in relationship to them. Who knows them inside and out. So, Adam and Eve's sin means that everyone thirsts to worship and find meaning in life. And so Jesus speaks again. Faith believes Christ can satisfy that thirst. He says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Reflecting the promise of Isaiah 55. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is reflected, we see, in Revelation 22. Okay, so Jesus speaks in a way that they'll hear, if they're familiar with that. Now, this idea of coming, this idea of drinking, these are in the present tense. And they seem to me to, to indicate that we are to continually come to him. It's not as though you walk an aisle once and you're done. We need to keep coming. We need to keep drinking. There's, a, there's an ongoing aspect of this that is intended. And we see the same thing in Paul's letter to the Colossians, which we studied before. You know, continue in these things. And so we are to continue to come. But think about this for a moment. We've talked about this before in, um, I can't remember which chapter it is now. But come and drink. Do you get that picture there? It talks about milk. It talks about wine there in Isaiah 55. And those things uh, provide something that we need. They don't do us any good if they remain on the table, if they remain in the glass. The milk will not give you the nutrients if it remains sitting. You have to partake. You have to ingest and receive the, the, the nutrients from the milk. The wine will do your heart no good if it remains on the table. It needs to be ingested to be drunk that it might make the heart of man glad. That's an important thing. Christ, while outside of us, must come into us. If we are to receive his benefits, he must be somehow in us. And the picture Jesus gives is this picture of drinking. We're all familiar with drinking. I suspect you all do it every day, all day. 
especially because you live in the desert. Okay, without the water, you're going to die. Drink. He clarifies so that they don't confuse this. They're prone to confusion, as we've seen before, in thinking that it's physically drinking that he's talking about. Whoever believes in me, and so coming to Christ and drinking from him, describe what true faith is like, what it means to entrust yourself to him. It's like drinking water, taking what's outside of you, getting it inside of you so it can sustain you, be of benefit to you. And so while faith, remember, sola fide, while faith alone receives Christ and his benefits, we see that faith is not a passive thing because these are active verbs. They're coming. They are drinking. But we also think, based on passages like this, that you must believe certain things about Jesus in order to entrust yourself to him. In other words, why should I go and drink? I will only go and drink if I believe that he has what I need. That he is somehow different from all the other things that bid me to come and drink so they might find life. I mean, people offer you Buddha. Islam. Success at work as a secret to the life of the soul. All kinds of things are offered in the world today. Think of any, you know, we usually go flip through the commercials because we DVR almost everything except sports, and even that sometimes. But they're all, all those commercials are offering you life. Just in a different way. If you have the right car, you'll have a better life. If you use the right toothpaste, you'll get all the right women. I'm not sure what the women are supposed to use. Okay, Drink the right beer. Again, it seems to be towards the guys, you'll get the right women. Life. They're, they're trying to sell you life. Why would we go there? Why would we go to Christ? And so we must believe that Jesus is able to quench the thirst or we will not go in the first place. Let's think about who Jesus is. For instance, from Colossians, or thinking along how Paul describes him in Colossians. I'm not going chapter and verse. But we think of Jesus in whom the fullness of God dwells, okay, would therefore have an unending supply for our thirst. That is someone who can satisfy our thirst. If we want to think about it in terms of how John is talking about Jesus through the course of this gospel, we can do that. We can see that Jesus, the eternal Son, who has life in himself, okay, is therefore able to give life and hope to those who drink from him. And so John's gospel builds us to this, this case where we should understand and believe Jesus is able. 
And this passage indicates Jesus is willing to give life to those who come to him, to those who drink. Note, again, that anyone aspect. This is why I believe in the free offer of the gospel. That we don't wait somehow to figure out who the elect are and then give the gospel to them because they're elect. We freely proclaim the mercies of God in Jesus Christ and he by the Spirit will bring them to believe if they are chosen. But we freely published this. Jesus freely published it. Not everyone who heard him speak here was going to come. But some would. A free offer of the gospel is part of what's going on in this passage. In a world of options, of things that you can worship, Jesus is the only option worthy of your worship, precisely because of who he is and what he can do. But here's the odd rub of things. Is that too often we can act, we who have come, we who have drunk, we can act like it is a shameful or embarrassing thing to worship Jesus and depend on him. We're bashful in talking about our faith. Aren't we? We seem to, you know, we want to make sure there's a level of trust with someone before that one comes out. We're almost like living in the closet. It's really weird. But sometimes we can know someone for months or years and they never know that we're a Christian. Why is that? It's not supposed to be that way. Too often, people will act like Jesus is not enough I mean, these are people who are professing Christians, and so they supplement Jesus with something else to have life as they understand it. In other words, they worship something besides Jesus, violating the first commandment. Okay. Well, I need Jesus, and I need college football every Saturday. I don't know. But people add these things thinking that they can't live without that and Jesus. Instead of, I can't live without Jesus, period. So as God in the flesh, Jesus is able to satisfy all those who come to him by faith. Third thing. The Spirit fills us with Christ and all his benefits. You see, faith has consequences. Is an instrumental means to various things. And Jesus points them to the scriptures to try and understand this. Out of his heart, Jesus says, will flow rivers of living water. Now, what's interesting is, <clears throat> you won't, if you, you know, put that in your concordance or whatever, you won't find a verse that says that. Jesus is summarizing a number of passages. He's not quoting a, a one particular passage. And so part of what he's drawing on is part of what we read in Nehemiah 9 earlier this morning. Part of what, you know, and, and therefore <clears throat> the accounts in Exodus and Numbers with, uh, you know, the rock, water from the rock, and the struggle of the people, but also passages like Isaiah 12. 
With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so Isaiah develops this um, theme for future salvation for the people of Israel that has to do with this picture of a well that doesn't run dry. Okay? Not like the wells on the, the, the periphery now of Tucson. If you read the news, some of them are starting to dry up. That's not good news. Okay? This well will not dry. Isaiah 58 as well. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a well, like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Again, this picture of salvation as a well-watered place, a well-irrigated place. There's no fear of drought and therefore blight and starvation. And so Jesus is borrowing these images from the Old Testament to help them understand that those who come to him will receive this river of living water and it will be within them. And so he's offering them, and therefore by extension us, the fulfillment of their hopes of the longing for the Spirit. But what's going on? As we see in the very next passage, the rest of this chapter, divisions, if you look, if my heading says division among the people. What's this indicate? This indicates that they are just like the wilderness generation, testing God. They've heard his voice, they've heard the offer, and they fight with God. Reports this in, in Hebrews 3, the, the author of Hebrews wants us to recognize the same pattern within our own hearts. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. These people are not going, by and large, going to respond in faith and drink. They're going to fight. They're going to test God. They're going to walk away. Now, let's look a little more at this promise. The promise, sorry, the hope is the promise of rivers of living water, not outside of us, but in us. In other words, the infinite spirit will dwell within us and be to us like a never-ending stream that gives life to the land. He will give life to us. Now, our heart, the heart for which Jesus said is the source of all of our inordinate desires from which sin flows, this heart is changed. <clears throat> this is a fulfillment of what we've seen before in Ezekiel 37. This is a picture of regeneration. Because now, instead of just the impure things coming out of our hearts, now there will also be holy desires, holy affections that flow to sustain, transform, and satisfy us. And so this is a picture not just of regeneration, but also of sanctification. That 
He will put His Spirit within us to sanctify us, to transform us and change us. And so we, we, we err when we think that sanctification is all up to us. Okay? And we've got to gut it out and all that kind of stuff. Sanctification is really the overflow of the Spirit within us changing us so that we are people who long to obey and begin to obey. But think about this for a moment. A river that never runs dry. It's hard to believe that in Tucson these days. Um, you know, the rivers by where I grew up, they never ran dry. But let's think about this. Think of a car you never had to put gasoline in. Or for those of you who have a Prius or some other thing like that, you never have to plug in a car that just ran. That's what this is supposed to be like. The unlimited resources of God given to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's a picture of what it's like. Another picture, perhaps would be, well, not a picture, but, but how I think about this is why it's so important. It's prayer, this is a, you know, remembering the persecuted church today. How is it that these persecuted Christians make it? And oftentimes they're cut off from the worship of the church. Okay, they, they can't join, you know, they're not with fellow believers usually. They're, some of them are often in, in prison cells and in isolation. How do they make it? How did a guy like Richard Wormbrand make it in Hungary? The Holy Spirit, whom he had received, continuing to satisfy his soul with the greatness of Jesus Christ, so that he remains in the faith and survives, regardless of what happens. The reality of this becomes important when we experience things like persecution. And so we want to remember, though, uh, here's my little caveat. If you believe in Christ, this has already begun, but it is not yet complete. So you're going to have holy desires, but that doesn't mean those are the only desires you're going to have you're still going to have unholy desires. Okay? Whereas before Christ came, all you had were the unholy ones. Now you've got both. But let's think about a little bit of what Scripture says about this. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so... Paul makes, makes, reminds the Corinthian believers in chapter 12 that they all partake of the same Spirit. They've all been brought together or baptized into one body by the work of that same Spirit. And they've been watered or, or irrigated or made to drink of the same Spirit. And so while for them there may be different gifts, there may be different abilities that are given by that same Spirit, there ought to be unity produced because it is one body, one spirit. No one is a Christian, if Paul would say here, unless you have the spirit. 
There's no second class. Some got it, some don't. All Christians have the Spirit. Similar, Romans 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Okay, note that. Spirit of God, first off. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, this time, does not belong to Him. So, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you do not belong to Jesus, Paul is saying. But, if Christ is in you, and so we see here, Christ dwells in us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not only does the Spirit dwell within us, but Christ dwells within us. He mediates the presence of Christ within us. Okay, back to that, back to Romans 8. Although the, the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And so the Spirit brings life with it. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is an important thing. There is no Christianity without this. We have to remember that. So Christ dwells in us by the Spirit so that we have His fullness and we have all of His benefits. The Spirit applies to us justification, adoption, sanctification. Any other blessing or that, he, that Jesus has for us, it all comes to us exclusively by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Whether, through, whether to an individual or to a congregation. Through the ministry of the Spirit. And so, that's why I say we should have another one of the solas. Solus Spiritus. Because He alone applies the work of Christ to us. Now, when John parenthetically speaks about this, he says, oh yeah, by the way, speaking about the Spirit, who had not been given yet, we have to stop and go, okay, what's John talking about? Briefly, oh so briefly. <clears throat> the Spirit had not been given yet in this particular way. If we think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we clearly see that, uh, you know, with our, with our theology, that no one can believe unless the Spirit gives them life, regeneration. So we sort of understand that. But the things that we do see the Spirit doing, gifting the skilled craftsmen for the building of the temple and the tabernacle and all of those things. And so we see the, the ministry of the Spirit in gifting people to do things for God's glory. We also see the Spirit present in the anointing of the prophets, priests, and kings to fulfill those vocations. But not everyone had the Spirit dwelling in them. Not every true believer did. So if we can make that distinction between regeneration and indwelling. And so what we see is that the longing, the hope in the Old Testament was that indeed the Spirit would be poured out on all who believe. And so John is saying that hasn't happened yet. And so for John at that moment, when in all the apostles and all the audience, that was future. Okay, It's past to us. 
because Jesus had not yet been glorified, John says. And by that, he means, I think, in part, his death and his resurrection, but I think more importantly, particularly in light of what's been going on through this previous discussion at the, ta- the, the um, feast, his ascension. In other words, unless Acts chapter 1, the ascension of Jesus takes place, you don't get Acts chapter 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so since Christ has ascended, he has been glorified, he's been coronated, he now pours out the Spirit upon his people. And that sustains his people, empowers his people. God has blessed his people through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have that now. If we have come to him, if we have drunk from him, he gives this to all who do so. And so all people thirst. All people long for someone or something greater than themselves to entrust themselves in uh, to, or, or to gain life from. Without satisfying this thirst, we die, just like a body without water dies. It is faith that comes to Christ, believing that he is someone greater to drink what he offers. And so we see the Christian life is a truly spiritual life, one that is filled, empowered, directed, sustained, and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And so this rules out any form of Christianity that is kind of a nice add-on to the complete life. You know, I've got my wife, I've got my job, uh, I guess to be complete, oh, I got my kids, you know, and my dog. To, to, to be really complete, I got to add Jesus. No, he's the one that matters. The others can be gone. And there's still life. Significant, meaningful existence. It also rules out a sort of moralistic, self-sufficient view of Christianity because we're dependent upon Christ in the Spirit. And so the Christian life is, of course, by sola fide, by faith alone, but it's also solus spiritus, by the Spirit alone. Let's pray. Father, too often we, uh, I confess, we minimize our understanding our dependence upon our the work of the holy spirit we can easily forget how essential his work is to our well-being our existence as christians father in part that's because his job is not to bring glory to himself but to jesus but yet we also wrestle with the reality that he is equally God, and to be worshipped and glorified. Well, help us to uh, grow in our understanding of, of how he works for your glory and our good. That we might indeed uh, remember the springs of living water that you have caused to dwell within us because of him, so that when we're afraid, we know that there is one within us who can help us. When we're broken, that there is one within us 
who can heal us and restore us. When we're guilty, there is one within who restores pardon and peace. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.